Hey, this is Tim DeShane coming at you from Providence, Rhode Island at GaryCon. You guys are listening to Brett and Sean Gaming and BS. Welcome to Gaming and BS, a podcast about tabletop RPG gaming. This week we're talking about... Holy cow. We're talking about GM screens. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. Welcome to the show. Welcome back. For those of you who have been with us before, good to have you aboard. This episode of Gaming and BS sponsored by Gamehole Con, a tabletop gaming convention occurring in Madison, Wisconsin this November. Get your ass to Gamehole Con and visit GameholeCon.com for more information. Brett and I will be there in full swing. Absolutely. But- We're running games. I think we each have two games to go. So, uh, yeah. Thanks to fun. Alex Alex and the boys over at Game Hole for sponsoring uh, the show. Absolutely. All right. Announcements. So the first one, um, happy Mother's Day. We've got a number of gaming moms out there and uh, moms who just support us in gaming. I know my mother was always a big supporter. I think I've talked about it before when I, when I used to run uh, some of the first people I ever ran for were my sister and my mother. So it's, uh, it's always cool when, uh, when it's a family thing. My wife plays and uh, she's very supportive of my kids. So happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there who either game with us or support us in our hobby. So thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, Mom. Thanks. About time you said something nice about your mom. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the other one is uh, Sean and I have effectively stolen another gamer. We have coerced Wayne Humphleet to uh, arrive in the land of the gaming gods here in Wisconsin. So uh, Mr. Star Wars is uh, now among the pantheon of gamers that Sean and I have access to. So, Wayne, good to have you in the state, man. Uh, we're going to hook up and uh, hopefully get some gaming in, get some beer, uh, do a dinner, something or other, brother. So glad to have you in, Glad to have you here. Yeah, Wayne, welcome to the cradle of gaming here in the Midwest. Yes. And the last announcement I had out there was uh, Evercon. I've talked about this before. It's the uh, gaming convention that I am uh, now assisting with managing and running in uh, January of 2017 will be our next one. And our planning continues this coming Friday. I've got a nice uh, session with some of the local uh, business folks up there who are looking to, um, I didn't realize how many gamers were actually like uh, village elders types up there. I, I'd <laughs> forgotten that people my age are now becoming village elders, right? <laughs> the people that, you know, <clears throat> run, run the, uh, run this village or sit on this board. They sit on this group of people and uh, so men and women our age are part of this. They're like, oh, yeah, I play d and I'm involved in organized play. How, how can I help you guys out with this convention? This sounds fun. So people are kind of crawling out of the woodwork. We'll see if we can get some of those guys invested and involved. Should be fun. Should, should I interview you as being the head dude of Evercon? <laughs> well, you, you could, but I don't, I don't, know what, I don't think that'd, that'd be that much fun, but. At some point, I guess the the other piece there, just for folks, at some point will be obviously once we get to a point where we're opening registration, we're going to talk about games and all that good stuff. I'll be throwing that out here on the podcast and other places, and uh, hopefully being able to entice some fellow gamers to come to Central Wisconsin in January and do some gaming in a nice, warm, comfortable location. Wow, that's great, Brett. I'm trying, Sean. Is that all we have for announcements? I think that's what we got for announcements. Let's get into Random Encounter. Let's do it. Random Encounter, segment of the show where we field emails, voicemails, comments from social media. Got a few this week, Brett. Just a few? Just a few. Well, I did all the announcements, so you can read the first one. All right. First one comes to uh, to us from Force Gary um, regarding our GM player secret conversations at the table, episode 86. It's the one right before this. And if you just oh. started listening to this show on this episode, you got to go all the way back to number one. Yeah, because there's there's 86 chapters in the saga that is gaming and that le- you must begin. That leads up to GM player secret conversations. 
Exactly. You, it won't make sense. No. It won't. I mean, if you if you just go right to it, you're, you're not going to get it. It's so if I be, were you, I'd start at one. Right, exactly. The nuances, it lost. No. Yeah, totally lost on you. Anyway, what's Forrest got? Forrest says, hey, guys, the campaign I play in most regularly is an AD&D second edition slash first edition hybrid set in Greyhawk. I play a human thief, and there is one other full-on thief, an elf, and another multi-class thief among a party of eight. That's a lot of thieves. That's a lot of players too. Eight. I mean, I've had, we've talked about this before. Eight's, eight's a fair number. I mean, I don't, eight is kind of my limit at this point. It used to get bigger, but that's about it. Well, is it a, a thieves. is it a party play eight players or a party of eight characters? Oh, uh, I always had players, eight players yeah. with eight characters. Interesting. Okay. Carry on. The cool thing about the setup is that we're playing on hangouts using shared files on Google drive. Oh, you're going to love this. So the DM has a copy of every, everyone's character sheet up, so if there are notes that need to be passed between DM and player, or more often vice versa, the DM and player communicate by typing on the character sheet itself. Hmm. This allows the DM to continue to give everyone else attention while scanning any messages. We'll let him know verbally that there's a message for him, and he reads from and responds on the character sheet. Since my character and the elven thief know the cant, or thieves cant, we communicate by typing our message to the other thief on our own character sheet. Then the DM just copies and pastes it to the other thief's sheet. I know it sounds convoluted, convoluted, but it is actually incredibly efficient, fast, and unobtrusive. The rest of the party knows when the thieves are talking, but they don't really know what they're saying which is kind of how it would be in reality if you are a non-thief character in the party. What do you think? Do you think? It does sound It does sound kind of like a royal pain Forrest. Yeah, look at that. The, I've got to see it in action, Forrest, because, man, the way you laid that out there, my first thought is that's a lot of fucking book work. Just documentation. Back, I need a stenographer with me. Um, I, don't think, but, I don't think it's much different than a chat channel whispering between players necessarily oh, but i do okay, i okay. see where he's getting at like the subtle nuance of the hey you've got a message game master yeah. and the pl- other players knowing that two of the thieves are talking and there's a cool thing with putting it on a character sheet it's more permanent right well where a lot of times chat chat data can get, can get lost between sessions or if you were texting me on my phone i could clear it uh could clear a text or something this is on a character sheet. It's a record, well, a more permanent record. I don't know if he's saving it because Google Docs has the ability to just see. You could see everybody type at the same time. I don't know. Also, it's interesting. It's yeah, interesting. It is an interesting it. dynamic. Also, I mean, if it works, great. Um, also, when we send notes to the DM, it's usually because we're off scouting ahead of the party or hiding in the bushes waiting to backstab anyone who slips past our frontline fighters. Yes, we've been doing a lot of outdoor adventuring. Now, one of the things that makes this all work so well is the fact that our thieves don't really try to steal from party members yet. It's the yet that gets you. Yeah, it's just a matter of time. (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) They act as scouts and spies more than petty thieves, though I must admit that I once pocketed a magic dagger while no one else was looking. Hey, I killed the skeletons and no else no one else wanted to venture into the crypt. Finders keepers. Of course, the rest of the party knows by now that I have a magical dagger, but they don't know what it is or what it does. That's my little secret. Anyway, just wanted to relate to you an instance where secret convo at the table is working well for everyone involved. Even the non-thieves are okay with this, though I'm pretty sure they've kept an extra eye on each of us when we sneak off and scout. I don't know how you could replicate this in a face-to-face session, but this does make for an interesting way to leverage technology and work with it rather than against it in order to enhance the playing and DMing experience. And incidentally, your idea on how to play a thief episode, heck yeah, thieves rule. Nice. Yeah. I, that is interesting. I mean, Like I said, it sounds, as he said, it sounds convoluted, but if it's really, if they got it down so it's an efficient, unobtrusive, it's just kind of background noise, and it kind of if if that's how the group likes to do it, and everyone's on board with it, yeah, you can make that role. Right, I could see that. I guess. Yeah, 
I'd have to try it. I'd have to uh, sit in a session and give it a, and give it a go. It may be one of those things where you're, you know, if he's if they're doing it every five minutes, it may be a royal pain. If they're doing it once every yeah, hour, that's a good point. It may not be a big deal. Or yeah, I guess it, so. It's the uh, the volume, right? Or the uh, frequency. Yeah, frequency. Thank you. It's the 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 frequency of the exchanges could get to be a bit cumbersome, possibly. Right. All right. Cool. Thanks, good, man. Good, good stuff, stuff, Forrest. Thank though, you. Yeah. Uh, if anybody else has got something set up similar to Forrest, let us know. All right. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right, I will read Angela Murray. Angela emails us and says, hey, guys, the episode on secrecy at the table is a fun one and appreciate your focus on keeping everyone in the game involved and engaged. I've seen secret notes turned into a nightmare of ex- exclusion. We've also seen them occasionally done well. The nightmare is the story from when I was in college. I should probably chalk it up to being... Dumb kids barely out of our hormonal teenage years, but was still obnoxious and hurtful. I've been gaming with the same group for about two years when the GM got a new girlfriend who started playing with us. I should have known there was going to be a problem when her first comment to me was that she had been hoping there'd only be one girl in the group. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's that's usually a sign. Uh, Angela goes on with uh, she was the <laughs> she was the one in a thousand example that gave false proof to the bad gamer girl stereotype. This popular game was, a, excuse me, this particular game was just the three of us. The GM, his girlfriend, his best friend, and me. Very quickly, I was sidelined. The girlfriend kept using her PC's psychic connection to the best friend's PC to talk. So I was left out of anything meaningful happening in the game, while the three of them just kept passing notes. This was the culmination of at least two or three months of her doing things like this, and the GM and the other players letting her get away with it. I started to get visibly irritated. She looked over and made a snide comment about me pouting. That was it. I packed up and left. I thought it had cost me. Uh, I thought it had cost me a game group, but she broke up with him a couple weeks later, and the guys pretended nothing ever happened. <laughs> Back then, I was more likely to put up with that type of shit. Of course, that's an extreme example. I've also seen it done well in other games with better GMs, but they uh, always do it in such ways to make it part of the plot or in ways to include all the players. A Firefly game that was uh, a riff on The Hangover had secret notes that were basically memories of what happened the night before just as they came back to the players. Anyway, thanks again for another great episode. Keep up the great work. Angela. Why do, Thank you, Angela. Why do, why do some players are just... Why are they they're such knuckleheads? Just, I don't understand just that. Jerks. God, man. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing it's, our hobby is as big <laughs> as it is with the, the, the amount of knuckleheads that may be out there. I don't know. Yeah, it's the uh, God, it's it the just, jo- it's a joke, right? Is that it's it's a social interaction and we tend, <laughs> and we get people sometimes with no social skills right. it seems. Or we or we draw people that we think, well, I don't have any well, I think the other piece is we talked about this before, is back in the day when you had three guys and maybe two girls or whoever was in your group, you didn't know anybody else to game with. And unless you went out of your way to ask, you know, someone else around you, hey, do you want to play D&D with me? It wasn't often something you did in school or whatever. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming it's still not very... Short version is I could see if you think you're stuck with a certain group of people, you might put up with some real dickheads. Period. You know, no, you, might ha- you might feel you have to. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And we did have different groups, but we always had kind of like a common individual that might play in multiple. But yeah, to play in another ones was like kind of trying to be, you know, can I join that group? I don't know. Like you know those yeah. guys or gals, but they gals I hate that word gals. <clears throat> <laughs> men and women, men and women, men and women in that group, right? Um, yeah. But it was it was kind of you know the secret, like the club man. You got to know the secret handshake and get. You got to know those people because yeah. I do. I, I honestly, what Angela said she did there, you know, just screw that and leave. I, I the best thing she could have done. Yeah, and as long- at that at that juncture, I mean, and she could have thrown a fit or made a big stink and a brawl about it, but like, whatever. That's how y'all want to play. I don't want to play like that. I'll leave. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, Angela, thank you again yes. for listening and for always writing in. You've always got, Angela's got some great perspectives. I really like, I really like her yes, stuff. Yes. I, I enjoy her commentary quite, quite, a quite a lot. I was going to say quite, a, quite a much, quite a much, quite a much, does, <laughs> quite a much. Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I'm trying to, I'm trying to do podcasting to improve my public speaking skills. And it's, I don't even understand what the point is at this, at this juncture. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a chance to redeem yourself. Uh, Chris wrote in. So this one's yours, sir. Chris Steele. He emails us. Hey guys, 
I started listening to your show back when you did the Chris Perkins interview on Bonus BS number eight and have been hooked since. That's a, that's a good episode to get hooked on, so that's cool. Yeah, well, you, it got proliferated. Yeah, well. it got out there. Yeah. I'm catching up on the back episodes now and I'm up to episode 39. Wow. Yeah, man, good. The most recent episode about secret conversations made me think about episode 26 on character backgrounds. Like Brett. Okay, well, now we got to go back to like episode 26, Brett. Holy, I don't oh, even. <laughs> I don't, I don't, what do we do? I don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> we, we'll have Chris this, remind us. This is why, this is why we've got guys like Chris and, uh, and other folks who have written in, you know, the, uh, we have to have archivists. If we, if our listeners aren't archivists, God knows if we remember what we've done. I could just, anyway. I can just imagine hearing somebody in their car right now. Hey, dumbasses, start at number one and work your way well, forward. Go back forward. <laughs> I might, I might have to take my own advice and do that again. Like Brett, I don't think secret conversations are good during the game, as it leaves players out. Although in my younger days, I did that often. I want to make sure all the players are as engaged as possible. So secret conversations are in the open at my table. The only difference is that other players do not get to meta those conversations. In general, I don't stop the meta in any other part of the game as it keeps the players engaged, even if all the players may not have a significant role in the scene. I, I think we kind of touched on that too. Like, Yeah, it, it's a fair approach. I think it works yeah. well. Uh, there is a, uh, one of our listeners later on to comments on using meta or not. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Uh, very brief. Mr. Roger. Roger from Marne. However, linking in the backgrounds, I do like the player char- players slash characters to have a few secrets that can be integrated into the story. I do this via email and having each player give me a few things they'd like to reveal about their character during the adventures. Each session, I can pick a character to highlight and work their backgrounds into that session. This forces me to not ignore their backgrounds since I'm actively making it the B plot in that session's adventure. This is just one of the several tactics I've been using to keep my group of six players engaged throughout the entire session as I really hate Candy Crush and words with friends and don't want to give the players an excuse to play those games. In my next session, I'm using a 15-second timer for combat, which I've had timers. I haven't used a lot. I haven't used them, but I have them. Uh, Once a character is called to act, I start the timer. If the action is decided and the dice are rolled before the timer goes off, they get a plus one in the roll. Nice. There is no penalty for taking longer as I'm taking the carrot approach instead of the stick. But the hope is to encourage faster play in combat with less agonizing over every move. Well, see, now this is where we differ, Chris. Um, I appreciate the carrot approach, but I think you should also carry a stick. <laughs> also carry a big <laughs> stick. Chris, at some point, you are going to catch up to uh, one of the episodes where we did talk about um, combat speed and latency and specifically in combat. So yeah. we touch on some of this stuff. It looks like you're well ahead of uh, well ahead of that episode, but cool. Very yeah. cool. What tactics have you used to keep larger groups engaged beside the blanket rule of no phones at the table? I apologize, apologize if you've covered this in episodes 40 to 60. If you have, disregard my questions as I'll get to the answer soon. Keep up the great work, Chris P.S. Sean, excellent work on using the correct emphasis on my last name. Finally, someone that says it right. I'm assuming it's Chris, the man of steel, is the the full moniker. Yeah, he's probably never, ever heard that. I know. I just, <laughs> now Chris will not, oh, he'll never get to episode 40 to 60 now because Brett's a dick. So what the qu- anyway, question, how do you keep them larger groups engaged besides the blanket rule of no phones at the table? I think it is covered in episodes 40 through 60, and I believe he's going to get there. Oh, we're not going to comment on it? No, I think I think what we have in the uh, vast morass that is our back catalog at this point, ha, ha, ha. I think there's plenty, there's plenty that we've talked about on the components of it. I'll tell you what, Chris, <clears throat> as you go through it, um, if you do get to, if we don't answer the question. Right. Come back, hit us with it, and say, "Hey, jackasses, you you totally missed the point that I think you should have hit." And let us let us know that and what and what you're talking about. And we'd love to be able to come back and talk through it. We've had that happen a, a few times before, where someone's come back and uh, given us some really good ins- insight or advice back to us. So, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, thanks, Chris, for writing, everybody, right. and supporting the show. Thanks for supporting. Absolutely. 
And next we've got Victor Wyatt via G+. Um, on the last two, uh, the last episode, 86 there, he said, I've yet to listen to the episode, but here's my two pennies on the soapbox. No player or no player, player or player GM secrets. I'm a fan of open secrets at the table. The PCs have secrets, uh, can have secrets going, uh, but the players and GM should not. When the players and GM know what's at stake, they can steer PC actions towards the most dramatic situations concerning their secrets. If players never find a out your PC had a secret by the end of the game, then the PC never had a secret that mattered one bit. Put the secret on the table where it matters. I'm sure I'll get a list. Uh, I'm sure I will get to listen uh, to this uh, to this one. The two of you will agree with me wholeheartedly, right? <laughs> I think Victor, we pretty much did. There is the there's a state there is a saying. God, God, now I can't talk either, Sean. Whatever he did is infectious. Um, if you have a background and it doesn't ever come up in play, it pretty much doesn't matter. Right, having a uh, a player's a character secret, having backstory, having these cool stuff, if it never gets used in the game, it's kind of like, why did you have it? M- maybe some folks may say, well, it's helpful to me, it gets me in the right mindset or whatever. But if it's a really cool piece of it, you know, that's where you know Chris Steele's component of linking the backgrounds in, actively making those pieces part of the B plot. It's the same with these secrets. If you've got them, if they're not part of the story, if they're not part of the action at the table, they kind of don't matter. They kind of don't exist. Well, because the table is where all the truth is. All right then. Yeah. yeah no. God damn it. All right then, man. <laughs> Next one's yours. Roger Braslet. Braslet from Maine. I could go so far as to say that players who act on information their characters don't have are bad role players. Boom! Roger drops a hammer. Bad role players. That being said, sometimes passing notes is a fun, non-intrusive way to handle sidebar tasks without interrupting the action. Honestly, I think most of my group would agree with Roger. That if, you, as a player, if you see something and you're like, does my character know that? Would I, would I know that? You know, and someone asked that meta question, go, no, you're, you wouldn't have any idea. Damn. Oh, I hope I figure that out sometime. And then you move on. Um, but otherwise, yeah, acting on, yeah, acting on information like that, that your character doesn't have, you know, that, that uh, normally doesn't go well in my groups. Bad role players. Bad role players. Bad, bad role players. <laughs> All right. Cool. Thank you, Roger. Thanks, Roger. Thanks, everybody who wrote in. Much appreciated. Uh, if you feel like uh, contributing to the conversation, suggesting any show topics, etc., feel free to email us at gamingnbs at gmail.com. Yes. That's Google just Plus one way. Us, the, uh, yeah, Google Plus, Facebook, all over the place, man. All all over. Where you, all where over. you find popular social media. I don't know. <laughs> What's going on, GM screens, Brett? Yeah, one of the things we do, Sean, is when we do have guests on the show, we hit them with our uh, our skill check. One of the questions you ask in skill check, depending on what they say, we say GM or player, they say GM, we ask them screen or no screen. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it's supposed to be a quick fire yes or no. And I started thinking about this because I'm going to be at, well, at Gamehole Con and for a sub- group of my of gamers in my hometown, I'm going to kick off. I'm a Middle-Earth role-playing, a Merp campaign, basically. It uses the Rollmaster system. And I love my Middle-Earth role-playing, my Merp Game Master screen, because that Game Master screen and the handouts that came with it contain all of the charts I need for that game. All of them. Every hit chart, every critical chart, every fumble chart, every spell, everything, excuse me, all of them are in there. And I love that one. I have a number of character, uh, GM screens I can't stand, but I have this weird obsession with with buying GM screens. I don't know why. I'll buy a new game that comes out. I'm like, oh, I got to get the GM screen for that one. <laughs> That's interesting. And half the time. That's interesting. And and sometimes I'll pick up the GM screen and go, this thing fucking blows. There's no good data in here. God damn, this is basically, that you know, it has no use to me. So I thought, you know, Sean, let's ask ourselves, you know, do you use the GM screens? Do I use them? And if we are or aren't, what the hell are we, what are we trying to get out of them, right? I think, I think when we get through this, I've got a, a different slash deeper perhaps point 
that I like to make around uh, game design, but uh, we'll see if we get there or if we get way the hell sidetracked. We'll see what happens. So, Sean, do you use GM screens? And uh, if so, why? And do you have like certain games you use them for, certain games you don't? What do you think? What do you got? Uh, I, it depends on the game and how I'm running it. So on Roll20, I actually pull my GM screen for Roll20 because I always get the funky dice for Star Wars Edge of the Empire mixed up, even though I've run it. I don't know, 12 times now. Um, but there's other conditions that are in there that help. So I put it to the side. Um, uh, so that's Edge of the Empire. When you're using Edge of the Empire, yep. you have the screen yep. using that. Yeah, for D&D 5e, I don't. I haven't. Um, I have not at a con game for some some games at cons. I have not. So it isn't a okay. hard and fast rule with, with me. It's not like I got to have a GM screen at every game I run. So, but you say it matters on the type of game you're running or what you think you might need? I think it depends on the game um, and if the GM screen will be helpful. And if it's at a con, it may be because there's a whole argument about fudging dice. So if I roll out in the open on a, at a con and I just go bonkers, and I end up killing one of the characters really quickly, um, and I roll in the open, you, you, it's kind of a dumb, It's not my fault, man. It's kind of a the dice deal. did it. Yeah, but if I, if, I can, if I can fudge it at a con to maybe prolong their inevitable death, then, yeah. you know, then I, I'll try to do that. Well, there are only so many stops on the Sean train when it comes uh, to death. Uh, so. Somebody say train. <laughs> Someone say somebody train. Say train. What? <laughs> so... We'll get into why, you know, if you're going to get any use of the GM screen in a little bit here. But I am, I like them for certain things. What are those I actually things? went, when you were running, when you were running uh, D&D 5e, I actually used my D&D 5e uh, GM screen as a player. Yeah. Because of the different condition rules and some of the other components within it, I found very handy. <clears throat> Somebody got hit with a sleep spell or there's paralyzation or some of those condition components were very helpful. As I said, with Middle Earth role playing, it's Role Master, which is uh, jokingly often called Chart Master or Table Master. There's tons of charts in it. It has all of them. The screen I have for it, um, and the couple handouts that go with it. For me, the GM screen isn't always when I do run with it. I don't always have it set up as a shield between me and the players. I'll often lay it flat because I stand when I run. I don't sit. Mm. So when I'm standing, I'll lay it flat. One, it's easier for me to see, and um, if it has, if it's useful to me, it's going to have core components of the rules that I'm going to need to reference. I treat it as a reference manual. A good game master screen to me is a reference guide for the system. If it has a bunch of cute, think what I consider cute, <clears throat> very derogatory phrase, but if it has things like, oh, hey, oh, it's NPC. Cute. Cute's not derogatory. It's just cute. <laughs> well, cute is cute. It could be. Whatever. Yeah, cute is cute. <laughs> it's cute. But like, you know. NPC attitudes, random charts, or, you know, weather charts and, and things like that doesn't do shit for me. That stuff I can ad lib. That stuff I can make up on the fly. I don't care about that. And that's just my my style. If it's not a um, if it's not a good reference guide, it has, it has no use to me. I can, I can understand yeah. that. I can totally see that. Because I think the game screen is going to do – There's it's going to – do uh, one of a few things or more than one of a few things for you. So for you, mm -hmm. Brad, it's a reference yep. piece. Um, I would say the same thing. I would use it as a reference. Um, I also think it's kind of an iconic thing too at times. I mean, you go to, yes. I mean, I, <laughs> I go to Gary Con and I love like the 12 player AD and D games. And there's the one, I mean, this, and it's a big square table, right? Is is that the Castle Grayskull one? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. There, there have been game guys have taken the Castle Grayskull play sets from He Man and Masters of the Universe play and made that into a game screen. No, not that one. No, okay. Not, I know which one you're talking about. You're talking about like right. the Fisher Price 3D. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, not that one. But I'm, yep, yep. I'm talking about like just a big, huge table of like 12 people. You're talking like three down the left, three down the right, and three at the end. So you've got three players at the end, and then the GM is at the other. That doesn't even make amount. That doesn't amount to twelve, <clears throat> three, six, nine. I'm well, sure, the, I'm sure the point is, you've got, pe you've got people. You've got people that are side. like, 
they're like six to eight right. feet away from him, and he's got to hide his stuff behind the screen. Is that well, what you're no, no, no. The, the fact is that the GM will be at one end of the table where the other end is four players across, right? And then the yeah. GM is one player and has a GM screen across the entirety of his end, his or her end, which is like the it's equivalent a real of claim. He's staking his claim. equivalent of four players worth of space. <laughs> And I know some of us that have been to Gary Con have seen this, like, you know, it's the first edition AD&D GM screen and then taped, like, I think it came like the base screen and then I think it had more reference, right? Like they There taped, is, there's, they, there's a couple different versions. Yeah. I have them. There was, there's a few different versions right. of it, but you can add them on. But it's like yeah. this, like, I don't know, freaking eight six, panel. Six feet of reference. Ref- <laughs> GM screen. It's like hilarious as hell. Anyways. So I... I think the the other thing that's handy at a convention, especially if you're running a, a dungeon crawl, you need the map out. If you want to hide, I mean, physically hide something, not yeah. dice, dice, and not dice, not included in this discussion. Right. But if I have notes, or if I've got a book, or I've got you know my monster manual open, and it's open to you know it's open to Gorgon, and the other another page is earmarked Medusa, and then right. I've got this other thing and this other thing. I don't need the player nosy players. I've had players do this at at Evercon where they kind of lean a little bit to one side or the other to try to look. I looked at the one kid. I said, "What are you doing?" He goes, "Oh, I'm sorry. I kind of, I just kind of shamed him right See, there." See, Brett is friend. a soft GM. Like he's a hard yeah. guy, but a soft GM. Because if he would, well, if he would take his when the kid the kid's twelve years old and I'm standing up uh, looking down at him, I go, "What are you doing?" These excuses. That's, that's as good as hitting. That's as good as hitting with it. Did you, you know, just growl at him? Well, that'll work too. I could do that next time. Six foot four, Brett growls at him. Yeah, that'll be fun. I'll do that next time. Hey, but um, I know you're gonna like drive this thing, but I'm gonna go off the rails because you know. No, go for it, man. Go because this is how we do it. This is how we roll. That's absolutely how we roll. Uh, creative GM screens. I don't even know if you have that down, man. No, that's one of the things I want to talk about here. Is the so. One, I, we've touched on this before, and I've heard this from other gamers that the reason, two reasons why they'll make a game master screen. One is they know what they want from a reference manual perspective. I want to be able to have certain key components that I know I'm going to be running. <coughs> excuse me, a waterborne adventure. I want to make sure I have all the rules for waterborne travel, the swimming rules, the drowning rules, the the wind charts, the <coughs> excuse me, what happens when you run out the guns, all that shit. So I want to make sure that's there. Your standard screen may not have that, so you want to build one to account for that. The other component is that as you do this, as you pull notes together and put them into a screen format or a reference manual format, as I like to use it, you end up learning the game system better and better because you're pulling components out and mapping it out. So to me, it's another way for um, system mastery, for me to obtain system mastery by trying to pull my own charts and so forth. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever built your own GM screen? I have not manually. I started and I'm like, man, there's got to be something that's out there because this is some tedious shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually one of the, I start with, uh, with more gaming books being available in PDF. It's handy to me to be able to grab the PDFs, find the components I want, the page, the chapter, the little reference guide in the back of the book that may have a whole bunch of stuff, print those off, get them spiral bound or something, and then have those sitting there. And so I, I guess that's I it's been ages since I've actually built a GM screen. That what I used to do is get like the D and D screen or whatever it was and then crib together or photocopy the sheets I wanted and then just paper clip them on the different bits of the screen. And I know some guys also use screens to coordinate combat too, you know, running initiative across the top. People have used it for that. You look at guys like Randy Farmer, and with his amazing paper craft, his screen, the front of his screen, the player-facing side of the screen, is part of the diorama that is his entire play field. That's right. So it, it helps with uh, just the visual immersion components of gaming. So, so I the, the closest I've come to really making my own is really just printing off, printing off sheets and then inserting them into what would be a GM screen. And I really think that this kind of comes down to, and I'm getting to this faster than I thought I would, but the a role-playing game book is is a lot of different things. Robin Robin Laws and Ken Height and other people talked about this <clears throat> excuse me, before, but the book is teaching you a system. It teaches you a setting. It's supposed to act as a reference guide for players and game masters. 
And it does a lot of different things from a layout perspective and from a design perspective. A role-playing game book itself is has a lot of different hats to wear to accomplish everything you're supposed to get in one's 50, 60, or whatever dollar book you're buying. So to me, I really do believe that a good game master screen, if I'm going to get one, whether I lay it, whether I put it up in front of me or I lay it flat because when I stand, it's easier to read that way. If it, it doesn't act as a reference guide to key components of the rules, I see them as useless because I don't need to hide my dice, right? And um, if I need to hide paper, like I've got a map or something, I'll be happy to flip it over. I'm, that that doesn't concern me as much. I'm not always that worried about people seeing something, especially when you're doing a lot of improv stuff like I tend to do. And some of the shit is just what, what flows from the narrative that's happening at the table. You know, it's not like I'm re- constantly referencing a book as I'm going through an adventure. I've also found that as, like I said, when you were running 5e, from a player's perspective, I have found some of the Game Master screens are pretty damn handy, again, because of the charts. They are, but if, I'm a little perturbed because they are called Game Master screens for a reason, Brad. <laughs> I'm just saying. Where's my player screen? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's something you have to earn. Oh, I see. I did have, I remember in high school. It's called the Player's Handbook. S- I remember in high school though somebody trying to make a player screen where they would put it up in front of them at a table <laughs> that did not go over that did not go over well. <laughs> oh, really? That's kind of hilarious. Yeah, I would. Well, if you can hide your dice, I can hide my dice. And then, oh, yeah, I see that reason. <laughs> that was, that's what it came yeah. down to. So from the dice thing, the other component is that you can roll in the open around a around a screen as well as anything else. It's not like it has to be there to specifically right. hide your dice. So. Now let's let's talk about though. So if we're using it as a reference manual, all that stuff's good. You said that there's certain games, or sometimes like, yeah, I need it for this. I, I want it for this game or whatever it is. Um, for me, it's it comes down to if it's a game like Rollmaster, I want to have all my charts. It's easy. Again, it's a reference guide. When it's a game like, um, <coughs> excuse me, like Amber, or which um, let's see, Amber or. Um, even the gumshoe system and so forth, I don't feel a need for it. Well, Amber's diceless, much, right? I mean, you're not hiding Yeah, Amber's diceless. There's tons of different things you could conceivably be looking up around how powers work and so forth. Sure. But there's nothing really to hide there. And even with gumshoe, it's just a simple D6 roll. Most of the die rolling is in the, in the player's hands anyway. And I could see, I've not yet played Dungeon World, but from my reading of it, I could also see I don't need a Dungeon World screen or Apocalypse World screen in front of me the die rolling tends to be in the player's hands. It's very player-facing. And the adventure, if you're running an improv-style adventure where you're reacting to the narrative that's occurring at the table, you don't necessarily need that The what, a pre-generated or a kind of a... I mean, if you're using a pre-generated module or adventure, I could see a need to like lay, lay a book out and you might want to hide it. But otherwise, there's no other... I don't see a purpose to a game screen unless I'm going to use it as a reference manual. Sean, is there, do you see, you mentioned, you, you hinted at other reasons you use them. So <laughs> I can, I'm hammering the, I'm hammering the reference manual thing far too goddamn much. So but dungeon world, dungeon world, I've used the GM screen. They've got inserts for dungeon world because it outlines some moves that are nice. Oh, okay. And it's based on reference. I mean, there's moves okay. in there that you can kind of, as a GM know, cause a lot of players may not, they may or may not know, but typically their playbooks for Dungeon World specifically outline the moves specific to their character class, um, which is nice. They'll just be able to pick those out, but they may not know some of the ones that relate to like, I think it's like make camp is one of them. So that will be oh, in okay. the player, you know, and even the GM um, may just want to know what those are because maybe they're playing with a player that isn't familiar with the game and they overlook a, a move that they could use. or And I say use in the generic sense because it's usually based on the narrative and you kind mm-hmm. of tie the two together anyways. But maybe if you get a player that's like, what can I do? And they look through the moves to gather that info, then um, then the GM may just kind of help them along in some respect. Okay. I don't know. That's a bad argument, but regardless... So what do you think about the this concept that game master screens force a adversarial relationship? Oh, Some, I think it's bunk. 
You think it's well, bunk? you know, first of all, you have to look at it from where it comes from. If it is adverse, if somebody's views it as adversarial, because then it's probably going back to the GM versus the players. Mm-hmm. Right. So is it really the GM screen or is it just the GM and the player relationship? I mean, is it the screen <laughs> that's enough. facilitating that? Really? I mean, I don't know. I think it might be the style. So, so we've, so from a style perspective, the other reason that, excuse me, damn it, that even when I do have screens, I tend not to set them up physically in front of me is because when I have, I have to talk over a thing to talk to the players. I don't like that feeling from a field perspective. I don't like it. Well, and I think it takes away from your physique and your persona at the table, Brett. You specifically. <laughs> oh, does it? That, that's the thing. Brett that's removes it. And it's it, like, makes me look, it makes me look tiny. It does. It, make, it, <laughs> it takes away from your presence. Where if you oh, ha- you just like, get this freaking cardboard out of my way, which you typically do. Which is what you do is you grab the cardboard. Right. I don't need this fucking right. thing. You chuck it across the room. And then you hover yeah. over the table. With because you don't on want stomp on it. right because you don't want anything in front of you. Now, because yeah. that way a player that way a player might think they're actually protected because there's a thin sheet of cardboard between them. And it me. works both ways, my friend. It works both right, ways, exactly. Okay. Right. See now, <laughs> so, I need all right. So I need just, a I, just want, I just want to say, in all seriousness, I don't do that. He's full do sh- don't do let him bully you, boys and girls. Uh, I don't know who you're going to believe. You can believe Brad if you want. Or you can ask Kevin. Or, Kevin, Kevin will vouch. For oh me. yeah, I'm sure he don't will. Ask Kevin. No, don't ask <laughs> yeah, bad, Kevin will vouch. For bad me. example. Um, for me, anyway, for me, a screen. I need one because I'm afraid the players may revolt and they may throw things at me. Well, they're going to throw your train tickets at back at your face. Go, what the fuck, man? Exactly. <laughs> um, I do know. In all seriousness, though, I, I know that some folks, when we've had them through the skill check piece, they've said, "I don't want the screen there because I I feel separated." I feel like I'm not part of the action. I've heard and that. And if you play, <clears throat> so I've, the more I've listened to guys like Phil and Chris, the other people describe how they run fate and those writer table style games. And when you have a, a culture of questions at the table, as Phil and Chris talked about a while back, or even what we talked about for secrets at the table in our you know very last episode, when you have that physical barrier down and you're discussing things openly at a table, I think there's a different feel that can be given versus, you know, the secrets that the game master has hidden behind the screen that he slow he or she slowly, you know, hands over the top of the screen, either the screen, either physically and, you know, maps or clues type of thing or verbally from a description perspective. So I think there is a potential, there's an atmosphere you can build with a screen potentially. Agree. I don't mean to agree. hammer on it, but yeah, I agree with that. I don't, uh, I, I could argue a screen or no screen. Either way, I really could. I could sit here and go, he, I could convince anybody, this is why you should use a GM screen. And I could convince somebody, this is why you don't want to use a GM screen. I honestly think the what the, the better, you, and again, this is going back to my, it's a reference manual. What I would rather have produced instead of a Game Master screen is a quick reference guide. Is like the rules without the fluff <coughs> language. Nothing like that. Like, how the hell do I attune to a weapon in D&D 5e? A tuning is boom. It's bullet point lists. This rule, this rule, this rule. Oh, it's this time plus this plus this. How does this chart work? It work. You know, here's the chart. Here's the thing. Very utilitarian. I would almost rather have that manual printed out on on hand for me. You know, instead of the screen, because that is what I I need to reference more often than anything else. Is how does this rule work again? Instead of sifting through a quasi narrative walking me through the discussion to get right to the fucking point. And I think if that would be better for me than a game master screen, so that, which I think is filling that gap. So that's interesting. Currently. I have, uh, so going back to the creativity I've seen around game master screens, there's some cool shit. There is some cool stuff. I have seen CD cases used as GM screens, compact disc player, compact disc people. Okay. Right? If you know what a compact disc is, <laughs> uh, go to an uh, I don't know a vintage. So picture like a blue picture like a Blu-ray case. Yeah. <laughs> For our younger listeners, right? Like yeah. Um, so a CD case is as if we have long, younger listeners. I don't even, I don't even anyway, think I going. have. It's called they were, they were referred to as jewel cases, and if you Google them and you want to buy a set of them, you can. But I've seen them where people. Um, so the album sleeves, right? The CD sleeves go in there. Yep. I've seen people take those and use those for a GM screen. 
So they'll put uh, art on the outside of those as they stand, and they'll tape them together so they can kind of fold together. And then, um, so they'll take out the part that takes the CD, and I think there might, maybe it's just the indoor door. Anyways, they put they've made their own and put those. The nice thing about that is it's like really low profile, right? Because I think they're like, um, got us flying here. It's gonna really drive me crazy. But it's a real low profile game screen, really wide, uh, small footprint. Pretty nice, right? I've seen those. Okay. Now going back to Brett, I've also seen somebody online where you take two three ring binders. Yes. Yep. Yep. And you you paper clip them. You take those big black clips and you clip them together. And then what you do is on the inside you have the three ring or the 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 three ring piece and you have inserts. And then in each insert, you can put whatever you want. Maybe it's a log. Maybe it's your monsters uh, stats, mm-hmm. right, on each one. And the nice thing about those clips is not only does it keep the screen, the two three-ring binders together, but it also allows you to page through and then just clip it, right? So pay. Oh, yeah. Clip. So you've got the little, you've got the, uh, yeah, I get yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. So that's been pretty handy. I've seen that uh, kind of home homebrew thing. So that goes back to kind of what you're saying, Brad. It's almost like you could stand it up as a screen or you could lay mm-hmm. it down shit you could just have a three ring binder but i think the way this was put together was kind of more of a screen type and then of course you could print up your own i like savage worlds um they have the the threefold the trifold uh eight and yeah. a half eleven landscape um and then you can go out on the web find landscape printed screen inserts and just so I, that's nice because you can use it for multiple systems right well that's like that's the randy farmer thing right where that screen is part of the environment right but you know the where, where, the, where the front right yeah where, where the inside is utilitarian perhaps but the outside is a paints a visual picture well a visual picture duh paints a visual for the characters and players, I should say, to look at and go, oh, this is what the mountains look like. This is where we're in the Elven Kingdom right now. We're in this right now, or this is a desert or whatever. Right. Um, like like I say, you look at some of the stuff that Randy's uh, posted up and other guys, it looks really, really cool. Then you get to the fancy stuff, like the 3D stuff, right? The, like yeah. the, the Castle Grayskull you were hinting at earlier that was done like back in the, was it the 90s or 80s? I don't remember when He-Man came out. But it's like that big Fisher-Price foldy toy thing. You put all the crap in it and you fold it and then you carry yeah, it's it like somewhere. almost a foot and a half or two feet high. Yeah. <laughs> and so That's somebody gigantic. did one of those and then I think even Wizards or somebody had like the castle kind, which which you yep. know had the uh, inside, well, what is it, the... Um, they put miniatures along the top and the towers. Oh yeah, the die roll. The tower would be a die. A die tower. Die tower, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, if you're really crafty and that's a cool thing, I, I get that. I guess for those of us who are not or <laughs> don't want to spend that much time on a game master screen, I think, I think from presentation value, they can be really, really cool. Um, again, though, for me, is I'm like, if I was going to put that kind of time into presentation, I'd rather put it into props that I could hand out to the players or or uh, maps or something like that, or miniature painting or something along those lines that I would use. But yeah, I really, the, the, unless I'm, unless I'm really getting a very utilitarian component out of it. And even then, like I say, I lay it flat because I don't like the separation between player and I very often. I would rather have a more open dialogue. And sometimes when I'm sitting behind the screen and the other part is because I don't sit, they're very difficult to read when they're, when they're up and down and I'm standing and I've got old man eyes now. I've got to wear glasses. Um, so it's easier to just lay it flat. And again, I feel like I'm more engaged with the players. Yeah, I, I could go either way. I I, yeah. I actually like the little, I, a bit of it kind of comes back to nostalgia. I mean, I kind of like it because there's, I'm yeah, <laughs> there's a, there's a, you know, kind of scrunched a, over looking at completely nothing, rolling dice that don't really have any impact on what i'm doing <laughs> so let me tell you there's there's a weird thing from a from a how you use it perspective not even as not the raw utilitarian is it a is it a reference guide or not but um some of the guys in my group were telling me they were at game con they were playing a game and there was a game master obviously <clears throat> he's got a screen up and the screen came up where he was crunched down behind it right to about the bridge of his nose yeah 
and he would not raise his head, and he spoke quietly, and he would not raise his mouth above the screen, the top of the screen. So he'd speak into the screen, and it's, it's fairly loud at a gaming convention, and nobody could hear anything this fucker said. It was like, so, then you go left, and then, and it's just this weird, it was just... So if you have them, just from a technical perspective or a tactical perspective, I should say, is if you're going to address the players, speak over the damn screen. It's a small, silly thing, but I have had players in the past say they don't like them because they can't hear. Well, what happens then is that if I'm looking down in a book trying to read some descriptive text or reference something, if I'm looking down in a book and I have a chunk of cardboard in front of me, you know, deadening sound and so forth, it becomes harder and harder for the players to hear. Then you end up shouting or whatever it is, which is, again, one of the reasons I stand is it's easier for me to project. But if you're going to use a screen, my advice is don't talk into the screen, talk over the screen, talk above it. If that means you've got to sit up, raise your head above it, just make sure that your mouth is over the top of the bloody screen, your players will thank you for it. I didn't think it would ever come down to technique, Brett, but thanks. It does. Yeah. All right, sweet. Anything else, man? No, but I, I think I, I, I like I like GM screens. I don't use them all the time, but I think they're useful for references, like Brett said. I have a t- I don't use yeah. them that often, but I fucking have. If you, if I buy a game and a game comes with a screen, I'm gonna buy the goddamn screen. I, I have this weird game master screen collection thing going on. I have no idea why. I like them as a shield. Yeah, that's true. When players get ticked off. I mean, especially at me, right? You know, when I went roll out the railroad, man, choo choo. Uh, and their dice are screwing up, and it doesn't matter. Sean actually, and they're rolling his, his, really uh, awesome, and and it's yeah, not going it, well for them because it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter. They're throwing <laughs> dice at me. I can like batter up, man. I could just swing those suckers. And Sean's screens are actually made with uh, high uh, high impact polymer or uh, Kevlar. Yes. Yep. Same things yes. made uh, for bulletproof vests. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And bulletproof windows, that whole type of thing. Yes. Cool. So I honestly, I didn't want to. Kind of end up beating the same damn horse that was dead already a few times. But I'm curious to see who else out there likes them and what they're using them for. And if they are using them, I am actually certain that there are other techniques and there's things you can do with a Game Master screen as tips and tricks, right? Not just from a referencing perspective, but it changes the tone of your voice. It does different things, where you put stuff and so forth, big reveals, you know, lifting a thing up to show the care to show the monster behind it. There's there's some cool shit you can do with it. I'm curious to see one any of our listeners if they're using them, how they're using them. I'm really curious about this. Yes, so please let us know. Yeah, absolutely. You can, you can do it the same way uh, you would write in for feedback. Gmail, yep. Google Plus, Facebook, Gmail, email, Twitter, Facebook, right. Twitter. The usual. Yeah, let's get into di- page. let's get into die roll. Let's do it. Die roll. Two to four miscellaneous points of gaming and geekery we want to bring to your attention. I have two. Brett has two. We got two from got our listeners as well. From our yeah, awesome. Go ahead. Sh- shall I get it going? Brett, you always kick off die roll. Go ahead. So Mark Hunt, one of the uh, folks on Google Plus out there. I follow him. I think you guys should too. He's a good guy. He also is a, cool he is a game designer, gangbusters. I think Mark did. Yes, he is. Yes. Um, he had posted up gangbusters. The blue book, uh, detective agency beginner game is up at drive through an RPG now. And it looks freaking awesome. This is, I just want to throw a little love to him. This is kind of a, um, <clears throat> it's kind of, it's, it's that prohibition era, roaring twenties, dirty thirties, Type of thing. It just it looks really really cool, and uh, you're talking for a PDF for five bucks. I'm thinking I'm gonna have to grab me one of these. It just looks really really cool. I like his work, and I think uh, I think it deserves to be pointed out. He did a World War II, um, based off a white box. Yes, I believe he did. So, so go check out Mark's stuff. Um, and there's also an interesting look I found. Uh, someone on Google Plus put this up. I do not remember who. It was around hostile architecture. It's the subtle designs and features within the city that make a city feel hostile. You look at the, uh, you go to the link that'll be in the show notes. It talks about there are like there's one um, a, a house in I think it's in South Carolina. They have these. It's like a um, 
these huge, like two and three foot long spikes, iron spikes on a spindle that turn. So if you were to like to try to climb over at these spikes, would just rotate. There was a um, there was a place I believe it was in England that had done where they had these windowsills that were kind of at street level where people could sit on, and they put spikes on them like um, chrome steel spikes. And the reason they do that, and the reason certain park benches are designed to be uncomfortable to sit on or whatever, is because it stops homeless people from sleeping on them. They have they have done things like having water sprinklers go off at inopportune times at aimed at certain areas to stop homeless people. So I'm like, okay, I kind of, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then one of the pieces in here, which I thought was really cool, they started using blue lights in public bathrooms because it's really hard to see your veins in blue light. Uh, so drug users have a harder time shooting up, hard, harder uh. time shooting up through intravenous drug use because it makes it difficult to see your veins. So it's one of those pieces that, you know, hostile architecture exists. It's kind of a neat... You read through it, and this is one of those pieces that I'm like, you know what? This is a neat little interesting snippet of something, a twist of how a city looks or a setting feels. That's something as simple as, you know, there's spikes outside the window. Holy shit. It's not, it's just a different twist on bars on the window, hmm. a slightly different approach. And when the city is designed a certain way that everything is uncomfortable to sit on, no one would want to stand here on the street for a very long time because it's uncomfortable. There's a reason for that, and I think that's kind of cool. See, not cool, not cool to do. So, excuse me, not so, necessarily cool to so do. Brett, I think the concept behind it is interesting. Brett thinks it's cool to torture people. That's not <laughs> what I'm saying. I'm saying that. I'm kind of. I'm saying. No, I'm kidding. But it's uh. So when you when you're doing your horror games, and or even any modern setting, I mean, just the types of things that are out there. It's just it's it's interesting, and it's one more thing you can do to add to your locations, make things more alive. Back to you, Sean. Uh, Combat Manager is an app for Pathfinder role-playing game. Uh, I found the article on fantasytabletalk.com. The direct link will be in the show notes. Um, looks like it is only Windows-based, but uh, the the rumor is that it speeds up combat specifically for Pathfinder relatively quickly. I think it does all it's the- It's also available for the iPad. Oh, it's got an iPad version. There you go, folks. Yeah, I just am looking at the website. Combat Manager for iPad now available and Android. And I think it's free. Oh, damn. I think somebody put it out there just to, to help themselves and put it out to the public. And So if you're a heavy Pathfinder player, um, you might find some use out of that. Or you might already know it exists. Very cool, though. Uh, number two, Wizards of the Coast is holding surveys. Now, I did not know this, but obviously they're throwing stuff out there to get feedback from the community. The most recent one was what are the top five races that are being out there? And they published the, like, what are you playing or what have you? Um, and they published the top five races being played. Uh, human, number one. Should have probably started the other way around. Dragonborn, number five. Dwarf, number four. Half elf number three, number two is elf, and number one is human. Huh. Uh, and then the top five classes, number five is paladin, number four is wizard, number three is rogue, number two is cleric, and number one is fighter, fighter. Um, Interesting. Sorcerer and some of the non-standards didn't make the list. Yeah, and now they have, so they have another one that's um, that's up and asked uh, asking questions. So I will have a link to the place where they post links to their survey to get feedback. Um, they said the paladin just squeaked by the warlock to capture fifth place on classes. Interesting. So for this month's survey, I think they have questions about DM's guild. Um, okay. Yeah. As well as three options presented in April's Unearthed Arcana. The Reverend race the monster hunter archetype for the fighter and the inquisitive archetype for the rogue so let them know what you think about those if you're playing 5e and want to give them feedback very cool otherwise we had two yeah. from our list we had two from listeners we had forrester gary uh point us to an awesome little blog post about complications for dcc characters that's dungeon crawl classics characters give that a look link in the show notes and Hawk Sparrow again is back with another one. This time it was a link about Secrets of Great British Castles. It's on Netflix. I found it out there, and I believe that the link in the show notes will also um, prove that to be true. But that those types of uh, things are the that's the type of thing I like to have, like playing in the background, listening to it 
when I'm doing other stuff or whatever it is, I always pick up a few nuggets through some of the historical components. Again, similar to that little piece I said about hostile architecture, just understanding how they work and different components makes it pretty damn cool. Yeah. Thank you, Forrest and Hawk. Appreciate it. That's right. Hey, and we want to thank uh, Lum Runner, who we know, and Roxville Rooster for reviews on iTunes. Much appreciated. Thank you for doing that. Uh, positive reviews. Yes, thank you. Um, thank this you, thank show you. brought to you by patrons like Joe Swick, Kevin Lovecraft, Steve Day, Old School DM, Christian Sexy Voice, Serrano, Jeff Rademacher, Forrest Gary, Misdirected Mark, Brett's Biggest Fan, Mark Anthony Benedetti, Tony Baker, Palladian, Corey Wynn, Bruce Cunnington, Eric Jeppesen, Andy Hall, Sean Nicholson, Tim Jensen, Chris Dill, and the Knights of the Night Crew, new folks supporting us. Awesome. I think they may, be aboard, a, boys. they may be a podcast you may want to check out. Uh, Absolutely. Consider becoming a patron of the show at gamingmbs.com forward slash Patreon. Much appreciated. What are we talking about next week, Brett? Next week, we're going to be on site with Alex Cameron of GameholeCon. We're going to be in the game hole. We're going to talk about collecting RPGs with Alex Cameron, the collector. So it should be pretty cool. I got I to lengthen our outro. Hey, that's all right, man. <laughs> or start it much later. I think what's happening is our patron list is getting longer, and I'm having yeah, to say more, this is, which is, I think... A, this is what they call a good... It's a good problem a to have, Not a bad problem, yeah. Yes, next week. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. <laughs> oh, I had to kiss my little one. Good night. A lot of say good night and good gaming. Good night and good gaming. Thank you, girl. <laughs>